0: I can remember waiting to get the verification that the <laughs> money had hit the bank kind of thing, and then there's that you know, back-slapping and, and uh, sort of euphoria, but now what do you do next?
1: Welcome back everybody. This is the Shock Talk Innovators Podcast. Today joining us is the Wichita State University alumni, Kurt Gridley. Um, so Kurt, first of all, how are you doing today? Great, great. I'm really excited. As, um, as you can see, we are messing around with some new equipment here, but the uh, audio is phenomenal. And where I want to start off with is we're sitting in Groover Labs. Your story starts off at Wichita State. You received a degree in both philosophy and mathematics. Is that correct? Yeah, it's true. So those seem like very juxtaposing majors to, to have in, in college. What got you interested in both those different routes, specifically the philosophy?
0: Yeah, so I was uh, not a typical college student who had trouble deciding on the major, uh, and I think I had a knack for math, and so was heading for engineering, um, and maybe had some scholarships or something, but I also uh, played guitar, jazz guitar, and Wichita State had one of the few jazz guitar programs in the world, and so or in the U S at least. And so I, I went there sort of half expecting to be a jazz guitar major and half expecting to be an engineering major. But, um, I ended up realizing there's a lot of people that have talent in jazz guitar and I wasn't one of them. So, uh, but in the process, I also found that the traditional engineering program was a little too rigid for my taste. And, um, I wanted to be doing more hands-on kind of stuff, uh, So naturally, I went into philosophy, which (laughs) is totally abstract. But, you know, I've always been interested in uh, sort of big picture thinking, but more importantly, sort of rational thought and how one goes about, you know, thinking about problems and working them through. So that was a large part of what attracted me to philosophy. And then it turned out in my trek to try to be an engineer, I'd taken enough math classes that you know, you only needed one more math class to get a major. So I ended up getting a major in both math and philosophy.
1: And then after that, you went on to Dartmouth for your master's, correct?
0: Yeah, I worked, uh, it took me four and a half years to get my dual major. Uh, so I got out in the middle of the year, December, and I ended up working for Boeing for, um, nine months or so. And in that process, was trained by Boeing as a CNC programmer uh, which was a really awesome job but uh, along the way I got accepted into graduate school at Dartmouth and so ended up going back there. Wow that's a lot of school.
1: (laughs) So you philosophy mathematics how do you eventually get involved in the computer technology industry?
0: So I'd always been uh, I mean I there a lot of strange events I think influences ones or at least in, in retrospect we think they do. I had a grandparents, grandmother in particular, that was very sort of, you know, we would go digging for earthworms at five in the morning and, and you know, just all kinds of really cool experiences. And and I was a ham radio operator in high school, and so I was involved in electronics. And, and so I'd always been interested. And this was the era of the development of the personal computer was coming about. And a lot of hobbyists were doing experimenting in their basements. And so I was interested in all that. It, WSU, though, it wasn't quite as far along on the, on the technology or computer spectrum. And so when I left WSU, one of the last classes I had was, you know, writing FORTRAN programs on punch cards for the mainframe. When I went to Dartmouth, though, they were really leading edge and had been heavily involved in the early days of the computers going back to 1950s. Um, and so I just got exposed to a whole new world of computing at Dartmouth. So I was in the math department uh, working on what theoretically was going to be a PhD degree in abstract mathematics. But I, along the way, it was math and, and uh, computer science department. And so I got hooked by the computer science side of stuff. And while I was there, the IBM PC came out. And so there was just explosion of activity. And so I ended up getting my master's after a couple of years and then uh, bailing out of there and going to Boston to start work in the computer biz.
1: So... The route you ended up taking was one of entrepreneurship. Um, You went out to Boston, you started um, Amber Wave Systems. What ultimately led you to make that decision? Because I feel like most kids out of college, it's atypical to go into entrepreneurship, especially in the 1980s. I feel like there's a much different connotation back then. What led you to to take that kind of route?
0: So it was a much different world back then, or it felt like a much different world than uh, today. And I would say because it was the early stages of computing, it was actually easier to think about starting a company or, you know, there weren't these established, you know, Google and uh, Apple and Amazon that had been around forever. They were, Apple was in its early days. And so there was much more of this sense of, you know, we don't know what the answers are yet. So people were experimenting. Um, and so I started working in the computer business in 1983, worked for a startup uh, that eventually went public Um And got to expose a lot of things that way. But in the Boston area, this was just in the air. And I'm sure other places, Silicon Valley, it was similar. So it was just a really exciting time that you felt like, you know, if you're just clever enough and work hard enough, uh, you could do something amazing. And so I went through a series of companies and startups, helping friends in the off hours with the startup or whatever, eventually leading to wanting to do hardware. I was doing software at the time, wanting to do hardware design. And knowing that you know no company's going to hire me at a regular job doing hardware because I didn't have a degree in it, so I sort of taught myself uh, a lot of the hardware stuff, and then had saved up some money and decided I'm just going to start my own company, um, so that I can do hardware design. And that was in the in the mid '90s, um, and networking was a huge thing. The internet was just kind of taking shape, and so I ended up starting a networking company after having done some consulting work, uh, rewriting. Um, An existing company software that did networking. So
1: 1994, that's when you started Amber Wave Systems. Um, and I noticed as I was doing some research, it was two years later that you got acquired. That is just a ridiculously fast acquisition to occur. What led up to that? Was the industry just so hot or did you guys have something no one had seen or what led to that trajectory?
0: So I mentioned I'd done some consulting work for another company and that was you know work that came my way um, as a result of somebody that I'd worked with in a previous job had gone to this company that was a networking startup. um, And he was a hardware designer and had done most of the hardware design of Ethernet switches for this company, which at the time I say were the size of a small refrigerator um, and sold for an amazing amount of money per port. And I rewrote their software because they were frustrated that They had great hardware, but it wouldn't run at full speed because of their software. So I figured out how to rewrite their software, got it to work at full speed, and in the process realized, you know, this could be done in a bread box instead of a refrigerator size. And it seemed like the industry was ready to go, you know, better, faster, cheaper. They were going to go from refrigerators to bread box to, you know, a paperback book size. And I had saved up some money and had this friend of mine uh, who's at that company who knew hardware to kind of look over my shoulder and make sure I didn't do anything stupid. Um, <laughs> and we just ran at it. I, you know, I self-funded it the first six or eight months, hired a half dozen people, and then got it to a prototype stage. We were able to go to, uh, it's called Interop, a networking trade show, in the fall of 94. So barely like nine months after starting it. And we went to their startup uh, area and showed off this product. And it was a case of, at that show, some of the big-name companies were announcing, like, say, it had gone from $1,000 per port to $500 per port. And this was big news, created a lot of excitement. And we showed up over in the corner and said, well, ours is going to be $100 a port. And people kind of went nuts, like, uh, how can you do that? You can't do that and all. And... So that engaged us with venture capitalists. We got some of the top venture capitalists ultimately to invest in us, convinced them that we were legitimate and spent the next year you know, making it real and getting it to ship. How much did you end up raising? Uh, we raised $3 million, if wow. I recall right. But the interesting thing was, as you point out, we got acquired – at the end of two years. So at the end of a year, I think it was in February, we started in January, 94, February, 95, we got our venture funding and February of 96, we were acquired. And the reason was we had, you know, working prototypes or working systems. Um, But the other was, it was like people were under pressure. You know, we got to move, we got to purchase a company or develop our own technology. And we were there in the right place at the right time. And so it was a rocket ship and it has pluses and minuses. <laughs> but I said we, we got three million dollars in funding, but um, often when you get that three million dollars say it's it's given to you in what they call tranches. So you get a, a million dollars of the three right off the bat, right. and then if you reach this milestone you get another million and, and when we were acquired we'd only reached we'd only taken a million out of the three million. Um of course, the venture guys have the ability to throw the rest, the other <laughs> $2 million in there and make their 10x return on right. it. Right. So at the very end, they threw the rest of the money in. But we'd actually only used about a million out of the three. Um, but that was a fairly typical thing. And we had Battery Ventures and Venrock uh, were the two main venture capitalist firms, which are, you know, really top-notch and did a great job of sort of helping us make connections. And, and then when the time came to say, you know, I think our best – Outcome here is to be acquired. Um, they brought in uh, mergers and acquisition people and, you know, really handled all that. So it was a rocket ship, but I mostly just held on and hoped it, yeah. it all work in the end.
1: Well, and I'm sure there are some really challenging times, but that is arguably one of the most ideal situations for having a startup is you get it going a year later, you receive outside funding and then a year later you're acquired. I mean, that's almost unheard of.
0: Right. And, you know, I think this is true. Most people, if they were honest, who have done startups that had successful exit, being in the right place at the right time is a huge part of it. Right. And some of that, obviously, is, you know, you're trying to position yourself to be in the right place at the right time. But some of it is just luck. And, you know, I also equate it to raising vegetables. Like, (laughs) in the tech world, you're raising tomatoes, and if you don't sell them when they're ripe – Six months later, you got rotten fruit. Right. And so, you know, it, it came down to that sort of thing. We thought, well, we could try to go to the next level, but we would have taken on a lot more money and, and do a lot more development. The risk goes up. Or if we can get this working by this date, demonstrate it to them that we can get acquired for a lot of money now. And the numbers just worked out. It was much more attractive to get acquired. And so we went that route. But
1: definitely timing is huge. The, that startup environment is one that excites a lot of people, myself included. What was it like actually being in it? Was it fast-paced, really long hours, or did it seem like the pace was decent and it was manageable, or what was it just pure chaos? You know, what was it? So it was incredibly exciting, but it was also
0: long hours. I mean, I, I am a little bit surprised now sometimes when I talk to people doing startups and they, you know, are trying to maintain a, a good life-work balance, and which makes a lot of sense. I understand that, but you know, it's you against the world. And so back in those days, you know, I'd be working 60, 70 hour weeks regularly. Wow. Um, But it didn't feel like work because you're so excited and pumped by the whole thing. And typically, you know, everyone involved had some stock or stock options. And so everybody felt motivated by the same thing. So that made it just incredibly exciting. Um, It's like you're in a race, a team race, and you're trying to beat the rest of the world and you're Convinced you're going to do it, and, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of fun along the way. Uh, but it can be f- typically, you know, companies don't work out, or often they don't work out, and and then it can be, you know, very demoralizing to be part of that. But it was, and in fact, that's why in the late 90s, after we'd been acquired, and I stayed a while with the companies that acquired us, uh, I eventually sort of stepped back from it because it felt around the 2000s that it started becoming very corporate, and that kind of excitement of the little guy right. uh, in the garage, sort of seemed like it evaporated. So,
1: right when that moment came that you guys were going to be you guys were going to be acquired, and you know the wire transfer, all of the great exciting things, did you have this moment of just pure euphoria, like I've made it, I'm, I am successful, or did you have almost the opposite reaction of what am I going to do now?
0: Uh, a little of both, I think. Uh, there's definitely that. I mean, I. I can remember waiting to get the verification that the (laughs) money had hit the bank kind of thing. And then there's that, you know, back slapping and and, uh, maybe even some cigar smoking, I don't remember, (laughs) but uh, sort of euphoria. But then there is – because it was a rocket ship, and that was awesome, but now what do you do next? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wanted to stay in tech, but I also wanted to kind of take a bit of a break because you sort of hadn't felt like you'd, you know, slept in – months Um, but ultimately about that same time we decided to move back to Kansas uh, to be near we had little kids so in 1996 we sold the company built a new house and had our first kid so it was kind of a hectic year in that sense Uh, by 98 I decided I wanted to kind of step back and so we uh, hung out for a couple years did some consulting and then moved back to Kansas in 2005 and the intent was, you know, maybe to do something aviation related. But um, I ended up really enjoying being around my kids and doing that. <laughs> so I kind of stepped back for a while. And then once they went off to college a few years later, uh, started wanting to get back into it, but not so much in a direct contributor role as, uh, you know, supporting the ecosystem in Wichita. So mm-hmm. um, there's definitely, you know, euphoria and, oh, my God, I'm glad we su- <laughs> we
1: survived that uh, a lot of times people describe entrepreneurship as like a bug and it's hard to walk away. Did you find that after you had your kids, you said you enjoyed spending time with them, but were you constantly tinkering and kind of asking the question what if I pursued something else?
0: Yeah, so definitely I'm, I'm that kind of person that just I'm always thinking, love to do problem solving and... Um, But I wasn't as actively sort of hands-on in the technology, uh, you know, web development and that sort of side of things. I was still – my heart was in hardware. And hardware has kind of fallen out of favor for a while, Uh, even though when I look around, all I see is hardware. I don't see software. But – and I don't think, you know, you're never going to make more than 10 or 15% of the population be software developers. Mm -hmm. So what's everyone else going to do? So a lot of what I thought of was trying to come up with products that – wouldn't be as stressful would be more lifestyle companies but be fun i could do hardware and sort Mm -hmm. of keep my hand in things um but yeah it was also nice to kind of not be in the in the throes of things through the early 2000s and the financial crash and all that Mm -hmm. uh it was nice to not i can't imagine having be in the middle of a startup right the financial crash hit, hit um so i avoided that but I definitely was itching to get back in it in some way. I still am, so. And Groover Labs, was. where did that idea come from? Um, you know, part of it was just living in Wichita from starting in 2005 and not really seeing the sort of tech activity that I was used to seeing in Boston. I mean, wouldn't expect to be that level, but sort of even on a smaller scale. And then as I got to know people, there were pockets of interesting things going on, but it was often one or two people kind of off in their own world. And it became clear that, to me, that what was missing was that ability to rub shoulders and collaborate with other people that were equally excited about uh, entrepreneurship and tech startups. Um, you know, which has a long tradition of entrepreneurship, but it's maybe in other areas, uh, aviation, which you know becomes a huge. Huge industry, hard to do on a small scale, Uh, some franchise businesses, oil and gas, real estate, not the sort of tech kind of entrepreneurship that I'm more familiar with. And so it felt like, and and people were saying this at the time, uh, you know, we we need a place where we can all kind of come together and meet and share ideas. And as we describe it in Boston, if you're going to the grocery store, you're standing in line. Five other people in line, probably four of them, are talking about starting a company. (laughs) And here, you know, you have a meeting of tech people, and it's hard to get that many people talking about starting a company. So that was really our hope. Uh, We were living downtown. We found this building, uh, knew the people that owned it, and decided that, you know, we'd set up a foundation, a private foundation, after we sold uh, our company and had been giving away money. But we decided we wanted to be more hands-on. Right. And so we thought this is the opportunity. Kids have gone off to college. We'll buy this building, renovate it, and provide a location for uh, the kind of collaboration and excitement amongst startups that seems to be missing in Wichita.
1: Well, it's a beautiful facility. And as I've mentioned, I'm not from the Wichita area. When I came here and checked out Groover Labs, I was just amazed at the fact that there's co-working areas, the podcast studio, event space, and then you have... The lab um, in the back for woodworking, metalworks, and hardware, and it's incredible that you've been able to, to culminate and bring all of these different items together to one location.
0: Yeah, it's it's been uh, kind of like a startup—you know, exciting and scary all at <laughs> once. Uh, we um, we wanted—you know—I've always been involved in hardware. We're in, we've been heavily involved at Make ICT and other makerspace in Wichita on the board there and uh, met a lot of other makers. So we kind of had that exposure. We knew we wanted to have that as a component in the building, but we also wanted a facility where there could be office space, as well as classrooms, as well as event space to do programming. Um, and so that was the thing about this building. You really need a pretty big building to house all that. And we found this building 42,000 square feet, which was big enough to house all that for, for something we thought we could afford. Um, Had our grand opening January, I think, 25th, 2020, and Mm -hmm. then COVID hit. And so, you know, it's uh, been a roller coaster since then. But I think we still believe in the fundamental mission of having a facility that can pull all the pieces together, hardware and software, people wanting to start companies and develop that. And the real value is the network of, or the community you can build around that Absolutely, that can provide mentorship and support for people. It's not really about the building. It's about the people.
1: Right. That's what I was going to kind of go into next is the amount of companies you see come through here must be just numerous. And do you find yourself getting the sense of like fulfillment in mentoring these different young entrepreneurs coming through trying to uh, run different startups and build their ideas?
0: Yeah, it is. It is exciting. And I'm probably an easy mark because, you know, I see people starting a company and I get immediately get sucked in. and want to help <laughs> them. Uh, sometimes, you know, people have ideas that maybe aren't really going to scale or um, it's a nice lifestyle business but isn't really going to get outside funding. Mm-hmm. And at some level, I think that's ultimately what's going to move the needle for Wichita or companies that can scale at some level, either in terms of employment or in terms of dollars brought into the community. And so – we try to, everything we do, look through that lens of, you know, is this likely to be scalable or into lead to a lot of jobs? Sometimes the coolest, most exciting startups or potential startups, though, have neither of those components. Right. And you'd like to help those people and support them, but with limited resources, you got to kind of be careful you don't spread yourself too thin. So... But in Wichita especially, we've just seen a huge range of ideas that people want to pursue. And, um, you know, I think the biggest missing component is one or two really successful companies right. that folks can look at and say, you know, a joke sort of somebody's successful and then people look at it and say, well, that guy's an idiot, so if they can do it, <laughs> I can surely do it. And there's a component of that, too, to sort of know that, people just like you can do this and you can sort of see how they did it and model yourself after that. And I think we've got, you know, several promising startups, but at least in the time that we've been around, nobody yet has really, you know, broken it wide open. Right. Uh, but things are definitely improving. And if we can get past this COVID thing, then I think it'll be a lot better. So
1: Right. They need that person to model after. Right. Um, Cause it kind of shifts that they believe they can do it. I think it was Roger Bannister who broke the four minute mile and had never been done before. And then the year that he broke it, I think a 100 other people broke it after him. And it's just kind of right. like you need that one success story that you can hold on to and think, oh, I could do that myself.
0: Right. And so once you see that enough, you, you try to condition yourself to say, okay, let's imagine this has already been solved. Right. Then how, what would we do differently as opposed to thinking, well, no one's ever done this before. You know, maybe it can't be done at all. Uh, because that's a very common phenomenon that once somebody does something, then a whole bunch of people follow um, and I think that's a huge issue in Wichita, and it's sort of two-edged sword. On the one hand, local startup people, you can watch YouTube videos or read books, but until you've experienced it firsthand, there's just some component of it that's lacking. Uh, and then the other part is people with money, venture capitalists and such, until they've seen something interesting come out of a given geographical area, they assume there's not much going on there. Right. And so. I think having one or two big success stories will both bring in more outside money and also provide great role models for local entrepreneurs.
1: Absolutely. And as we start to wrap up, our our primary demographic is Wichita State students here that listen to the podcast. What advice would you offer to them that they have the entrepreneurial spirit? What what do you think would be some good um, words for them to listen to? (laughs) Um,
0: That's a good question. (laughs) First thing that comes to mind, which I'm struggling not to say is drop out of school (laughs) um no I I think you know WSU is a great school um and has a lot of good things in the works but there's no substitute for getting hands-on experience and so I would encourage encourage anyone that's a student to seek out every opportunity to you know, participate in other people's startup, even if it's on a volunteer basis. Uh, I'd say certainly back in the day that I was mainly working, um, it wasn't at all uncommon for someone to start out working for free or under the promise of stock, you know, down the road. Um, And so you're investing your personal uh, worth in that company, and you're very committed and I think that's, people should be willing to take risks just to get that exposure, you know, to hang out around people that are doing it, because it's not something I think you can teach in a classroom uh, or just read about. I think you have to experience it. So that would be one thing. And, you know, hopefully over time, Groover Labs becomes a place where if they want to know where they can kind of get that exposure, they could come to a place like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely, that's the main thing is doing it. There's, and even, you know, summer job opportunities or that kind of thing, just try to do everything you can to get as much exposure to the different areas that you think are relevant to what you're interested in doing. And then at some point, pick – I'm a big fan of like Kickstarter campaigns. Yep. So pick – obviously, focus focuses more on the hardware side of things. But, you know, find some little thing that, you know, maybe you sell for 25 bucks and – And make that, because going through the process, you have to market it, you have to build it, you have to sell it, all those sort of stages. I think that's a great microcosm way to get exposed to what it's like to do a startup company. And I think you'll come out of an experience like that, you know, just so much more informed about what matters and what doesn't matter about starting a company. And that's something you can, you know, get together with a few of your friends, come up with some simple device or game. I mean, there's people that have done all kinds of really simple products, but even a simple product when you need to make, a thousand of them or whatever, there's a process you got to go through. And so I definitely encourage people to consider things like that.
1: Right. And I met with you a couple months ago because I'm working on a startup as well. And I want to share a piece of advice you gave me because I thought it was just phenomenal. Um, You said that prior to Amber Wave systems, you really were on the software side. You hadn't done a ton of hardware. And so you said, if you're going to do a startup, have something in mind to where even if it fails, you got value out of it, whether it was from the connections or a skill you learned, for example, it was the hardware that you were learning. And I thought that was something really valuable because a lot of people see the risk and the downside of, if this isn't successful and I don't get acquired, then you know I lost money. It was a waste of time, whatever the situation was. But as long as you have that, that trade in mind or that skill that you're looking to develop, after that startup, you have that experience. You can put that in other places, and it's really invaluable. I thought that was a great piece of advice that you'd given me.
0: Yeah, there's no better way to learn things than to fail. Uh. <laughs> But yeah, that's always do have a plan B and sometimes it, some people feel like it's a pretty lame plan B, but you'd be surprised how many failed startup people come out of that, go on to do amazing things. And so like when I did Amberwave, I wanted to learn hardware and after having go through that going through that experience, I met all kinds of, you know, assembly houses and manufacturers that I could work with later. And then even if it hadn't worked out and I'd burned through my savings, I would now be employable as a hardware engineer and you know, people would know that I'd gotten venture funding or this and that. And so you become much more attractive in other ways to other companies. So every time you change a job, even if it didn't work out that well, you keep stepping up the ladder. And so, you know, it makes it easier to take a big risk if you sort of know that, you know, worst case, you kind of have a a plan B. And uh, taking those risks is what really is important. And so whatever it takes to get you to sort of feel comfortable that, this crazy thing you're never sure is going to work is worth, you know, it's better than sitting at home just watching videos. So. Right, absolutely.
1: Well, Kurt, I want to give you the opportunity. Where can people connect with you or, or learn more about Groover Labs online?
0: Yeah, so we're uh, we have uh, we're on social media, uh, most of the major platforms, but also our website grooverlabs.org, grooverlabs.org. Um, and in case people don't know, Groover—the name came from a combination. Uh, my wife's last name is Hoover and my last name is Gridley and put the two together and you get Gruber. Um So, but we have a website. You can come most of the stuff, you can sign up for our newsletter there and most of the stuff, activities are going on. We always announce at least a week or two ahead in, in our newsletter. Um, and then you could also follow us on the various social media channels. So, or just come by we're open Monday through Friday, nine, eight to five. Um, we have a kind of casual coworking space. You can come drink coffee. We have a day pass, various things. So there's a lot of easy avenues to kind of test the waters here or just come to an event.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Kurt. I appreciate your time.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Jacob.